once a year in April. They uh, fry up tons of catfish every year. They have catfish races. They have a bunch of festivities that are catfish related. And uh, I grew up, you know, wanting to be the catfish queen one day, but I sadly uh, did not even make it into the top 40, probably. So there's a pageant. There is a pageant. It's very prestigious. Nancy French grew up in Paris, Tennessee, a small town not too far from the Tennessee River, and home to what's called the world's biggest fish fry. What was what was your life like growing up? Well, I lived out by the lake. Um, I went to church. Um, church was main, the main occupation of my life. You know, back then you'd go three times a week. We grew up with, you know, a small number of people. Um, so you couldn't do anything bad without people catching you and telling your parents. You you really couldn't get away with anything. When I was in high school, dating wasn't um, that amazing because frequently dates consisted of going out to cow fields and sneaking cigarettes and drinking, you know, Pabst Blue Ribbon. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, on TV I would see people go on dates and sit down to restaurants and there might be a rose on the table and I couldn't even imagine something like that for me. I did actually become homecoming queen, not to brag, but I feel like I should redeem myself at least partially after my catfish queen aspirational failure. When Nancy was a senior in high school in the early 90s, she started getting calls from college admission officers. But she wasn't that excited about college because there was really only one school that her parents would let her consider. We belong to a certain segment of Christianity called the Church of Christ. And when you're in the Church of Christ, you go to Church of Christ schools. There are only a few. And so there was one that was two hours away in Nashville called David Lipscomb University. And their basic requirement for admission at the time was, you know— and 18 on the ACT and being baptized by immersion, and I qualified. And so my parents were willing to pay to go to this school. I could only go to this school because it was a member of this denomination. So I had a bad attitude about it and was sort of a punk when they, the admissions people called me to determine my enthusiasm level for fall admission. So they would call me and they would breathlessly say, oh my gosh, are you so excited about coming to Lipscomb? And I just decided to be a jerk. So I said, well, I'm really not excited because I want to go to law school and I don't think you can get into a good law school from this small college. And the person said, that's interesting. My friend David French graduated from Lipscomb and he's now a 1L at Harvard Law School. Is that good enough for you? (laughs) And I... (laughs) sort of stammered because I didn't actually want to go to law school. I didn't know how to spell Harvard. I'd never considered going to law school. But once he put it out there, I had to accept his offer when he asked if David French could call me later in the week to talk to me about my law school aspirations. Now, at the time, we had no computers. We had no internet. Um, I didn't know anybody who'd ever gone to, you know, Harvard probably didn't know anyone who'd gone to law school. And so I was completely gobsmacked. So I went to our local library and I looked for anything that could teach me about Harvard so that I wouldn't sound like a complete idiot. So I went to the the library and I read, there was an article in GQ magazine about Harvard Law School that month. And so I read it, you know, 
every word of it, and I was as prepared as I could possibly be for trying to fake my level of sophistication. A week later, David French gave Nancy a phone call, and Nancy was surprised by how much she enjoyed talking to him. He was kind. He he respected me. He didn't try to call out the fact that I had no idea what I was saying. I thought that he was conversationally fascinating. I'd never talked to anyone who was at an Ivy League school before. I just, I sort of fell in love with him over the phone. I mean, he didn't know that. I was trying to play it cool, you know, but I just thought he was wonderful. And we talked for about an hour and he answered my questions. And I think I made it through the conversation pretty well. So at the end of that phone call, I mean, he'd answered the questions. Yes, you can get into a good law school. He had done the the favor for his friend to talk to this girl who needed convincing. Right. Um, Was there any thought that you'd talk to him again? Was there any reason for you to talk to him again? No, he had no interest in me whatsoever. Other, (laughs) um, But in fact, at the time, he was engaged. And um, so he had mentioned that. So I was disappointed to hear that. But yeah, I never thought I'd see him again. Nancy did end up going to David Lipscomb, and she says that, as she expected, she didn't like it very much. I rebelled against, you know, the environment there. Um, It was a great school, but I didn't like it. And so one day when I was a junior, I was walking down the sidewalk, and I saw David French coming at me. Now, I knew what he looked like because everyone talked about David French. He was sort of like the golden child of David Lipscomb because he had graduated, he'd gone to Harvard, and he'd graduated from Harvard just recently. So I ran into him on the sidewalk. And, and you, hadn't see, you hadn't seen him or spoken to him in years. No, no, no. I just, you know, and I, but I had heard the rumor that he had broken up with his fiance. So I was, you know, I was very aware of that. And did you, you went up to him and said, I'm that girl, Nancy? Yeah, I was like, you know, we, I'm that girl you convinced to come here. And by the way, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> so my conversational skills had not improved since when I was in high school. However, we talked on the sidewalk for maybe an hour. I missed my class. And at the end of the conversation, he handed me a business card, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. I didn't know anybody who had business cards. And I, in the back of my mind, I remembered that conversation and the fact that he treated me with such respect, even though I was obviously blowing smoke in our first conversation several years ago. So what happened? So we go out. We went to Amerigo's uh, in downtown Nashville, and it was an Italian restaurant. And the, actually, our first date wasn't that great because we sort of, I don't know, it just is almost like we didn't mesh exactly. And But we decided to go out one more time. And on the second date, everything sort of fell into place. I realized that I would marry this person if he asked. On the second date? Yes. Did you? Did, you didn't tell him that it was. Just, no, I <laughs> so didn't. You just kept I, that to yourself. I kept it to myself because I was still trying to act cool. But it, there was <laughs> there was no cool about it. Like we quickly fell in love. I mean, I think within, you know, just a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. He, we were walking, and he was on. He was, you know, doing the soliloquy about how much he loved me, and my mind was wandering. And at the end of his his speech, he said, so I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, would you like to marry me? 
And I mean, I remember the moment because we were standing next to a sewage drain. He had no ring. He hadn't prepared to propose, I guess. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I thought, yeah, I'll marry you. I just thought, this guy's awesome. This could be an adventure. Let's do it. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. I complicated matters a bit because when he proposed, I did put stipulations on it. Again, I was trying to act like I was very worldly um, because I felt like if you're marrying someone who went to Harvard Law School, you have to, you know, bring it. You have to be as sophisticated as, you know, people who go to Ivy Leagues. And so when he asked me to marry him, I said, sure, I'll marry you, but I want to live in New York City. And that was only because I'd watched Woody Allen movies, and I felt like people who lived there had to be very fancy. And then I said, and I want to get married in Paris, France. And that was only because I'd watched movies, and Paris, France seemed like the most exciting and romantic place to get married. And so he said, okay, let's do that. So imagine the scene when I told my parents that I was going to drop out of college, um, because I still hadn't graduated. I just didn't like it and marry this person that I barely knew. And by the way, the wedding's in France, and we're gonna move to New York after that. And when I agreed to marry David, I said, I really need a view of the Empire State Building. Okay, I did not know any other buildings in Manhattan. I just knew that that existed and I thought it sounded good. And so he was like, yeah, let's totally do that. But my parents were shocked. They. My mom said, you're marrying a stranger. We don't even know who this is. Nancy's friends were just as shocked. So were David's. They even held an intervention to get him to call off the engagement. It didn't work. Did David follow through on his promises? Did you get married in Paris? Yes. Uh, My family came. His family came. We were supposed to get married on the Seine River on uh, a boat, and on the way to the airport, we found out the boat sank. And so (laughs) we did not pick up the cosmic clue on that. We just decided, oh, that just must mean there's somewhere else to get married. So we flew to France, had nowhere to get married. I bought flowers off the street, a dress off the rack, and we got married in a little restaurant near Notre Dame, and it was very romantic. And what about New York? Did he get you a view of the Empire State Building? Yes, we lived at third. We lived at third and eighteenth, and I had a view of the Empire State Building from my fire escape. If you craned your neck, and it was so romantic. I transferred to New York University, and you know, it felt like everything was working out quite well. I mean, this is like, I mean, every step here, you're just you're checking every box. Yes. <laughs> So you get to New York, you're young, you're married, you can see the Empire State Building, but you haven't known each other for that long. I mean, had you had you lived together before you were married? Oh, no, no. We were both very strict Church of Christ people. And so we, you know, we got married in France and we flew straight to New York. And um, yeah, and that was the first time that we'd lived together. And unbeknownst to me, We weren't able to spend time together once we got to New York because he was a a lawyer, obviously. And New York law firms are not incredibly amenable to newlywed life. 
Um, so once we, you know, got settled in our Gramercy Park apartment, he went off to work and I went to NYU and I sold bicycles on Broadway and, you know, I just had a part-time job and I loved our lives, but I didn't get to see him. He would work all the time. I mean, sometimes he would come home at 11. Sometimes he wouldn't come home at all. I'd, you know, take the bus and deliver him food or, you know, like we just rarely saw each other after that. So we knew, so we got to spend a good month together and then he sort of disappeared into his law firm. And then the phone started to ring. So we were in our apartment. It was like a 500 square foot apartment in Gramercy Park. And the phone rings and David answers it. And he says, oh, it was the wrong number. And I thought, huh, that's weird. A couple of days later, we get another call, and I answered it, and it was someone who asked for David, so I handed him the phone, and then he hung up a few minutes later, and he goes, oh, it was the wrong number, and I thought, okay, that's interesting, and then one day, he was at work, and I got a call, and the phone rang, and they asked for David, and it was female, and she was adamant that she speak to him, and I was like, David is not here. He's at work. And she said, but I saw him last night. Please have him call me back. And I was like, okay. So I took down the number and I was like, this is bizarre. He was supposed to be working last night. I don't understand. And then the phone rang again and then again and again. And every time I answered it, it was a female who was very interested in speaking to David. And they would give me details about it. They were like, yeah, you know, I saw him in Soho. Or I was at this party, and it was amazing, and I really want to speak to him. He gave me this number. Thank you so much for just passing the message on. And so time after time after time, I would just write down the messages. And, you know, Victoria called, and Leslie called, and Jill called. And every time I... It sort of like built a brick in my heart against my husband because I kept thinking it's weird because he says he's working all the time, but it feels like maybe he has this alternative lifestyle that I don't know about. Were you dying? I mean, I would be dying. Would you write little messages like Victoria called 117, Leslie 418? You know, were, were you handing him these women's names and numbers when he would return home from work? Yeah, and for a period, we exchanged sort of bafflement over it. But as they progressed, and the calls would come all hours of the day and night, I began to think that maybe it wasn't, you know, just the wrong number because they were asking for him by name. And I never saw him. So, you know, I might get a call at 1 o'clock in the morning asking for David, And David wasn't there. He was at the law firm, I thought. And so I began to think, oh, my gosh, everyone was against me dropping out of college, marrying a complete stranger, and moving to New York. Perhaps they may have been onto something. Maybe that is not the right way to conduct your life. Support for This Is Love comes from Shopify. If you've ever had a dream of starting your own business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is an online platform that lets you sell things online and in person. 
and makes it incredibly easy to accept all kinds of different payment methods, figure out how to charge taxes, how to charge shipping, and get detailed, top-down views on how your sales are going. Some of your favorite brands already rely on Shopify to power their online shops, like Rothy's, Brooklyn, and Allbirds. But you don't need to be well-established to use Shopify. They'll help you at every stage of your business and have tools to help people who are just starting out, like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create and analyze campaigns. Shopify grows with your business, no matter how far or big you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash thisislove, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash thisislove now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash thisislove. When you would deliver these messages to, to David with these women's numbers, and he would look baffled, were you thinking to yourself, oh, he... He's playing a good game here. He knows exactly what's going on. I mean, would you start to be skeptical of his answers to you? Yeah, I began to wonder what was going on. I believed him because, you know, during our very uh, short duration of a relationship, he'd always presented himself as a very, you know, a person of integrity, <clears throat> a man who would tell the truth. But this other side was coming out, and I was wondering if he was, you know, when I met him— for the first time, I was trying to be someone I, I wasn't. I was trying to present myself as this woman of the world, this sophisticated person, when in actuality, I was from the catfish capital of the world, and I'd never flown on a plane, you know? So, like, I I was trying to present myself as something I wasn't, and I started to suspect if maybe he had done the same, you know, to me. So he's actually a womanizer who has tons of relationships with women in New York, and you're going to be the the wife who stays home, and he'll be out all, all hours of the night, and yeah, that's just that's what you've gotten yourself into, right? And I wouldn't know any better because I didn't know how I wasn't familiar with the law firm life, and um, so it, it, everyone else seemed to think it was normal for him to be gone for a couple of days at work, you know. And I started thinking, well, maybe this isn't actually how law firm life is. Maybe he just has these extracurricular activities that I'm not familiar with. When the women would call, were they nice to you? Or were they... What was their tone on the phone? How did they react to you? They were pretty breathless. They were enthusiastic. They were nervous. They were, um, it felt like maybe they um, had trepidation in their hearts over making the call. Like, then if I said he wasn't there, they would get demanding. Um, you know, some of them were super nice and, you know, acquiesced when I said he wasn't there. Some of them became belligerent. It was a wild ride of emotions every time the phone rang. Did you ever say to any one of these women, no, David isn't here, but I'm his wife and I am? <laughs> no, I didn't have I didn't have an ounce of like, you know, intestinal fortitude during those years. I was very young. I mean, by this time I was 21 uh, and I was married. I mean, I... I just, I felt like I'd done everything wrong against the advice of every person in my life, you know, who had told me and warned me against this, this strategy. Was it only women who would call? Only women, until one day. I answered the phone, and it was a man's voice. And I thought, you know, 
this is different. So maybe I can talk to this guy. So he calls and asks for David. And I was like, he's not here. He's at work. And the, the line was silent for a few moments. And he goes, what do you mean he's at work? And I said, well, he left early this morning and he's been gone all day. I don't know what to tell you. He's just at work. And he goes, if he was at work, I should know this. And I thought, huh, maybe the law firm has like a supervisor who keeps tabs on the attorneys and maybe David wasn't actually at work. And so I, the mystery deepened and I thought this person has my answers. And so I began to uh, question him and I was like, what do you mean you haven't seen him? And he goes, no, I haven't seen him. It's ridiculous. And by the way, who are you? And I said, well, my name is Nancy, and I'm David's wife. And he absolutely lost it. He goes, what do you mean you're his wife? When did this happen? I've known David for years, and I didn't even know you guys got married. And so I said, I don't know. I was young. I thought he was great. We just sort of got married in France. And he was like, what? I don't even know this. And he goes, is is there a young David Lee on the way? He assumed that I had gotten pregnant and been forced, you know, to, into matrimony. But one thing stuck out to me. David, my husband's middle name is Austin. And I said, do you mean David Austin? And he goes, no, David Lee. He goes, everybody knows that his middle name is Lee. And I was like, no, it's David Austin French. And he was like, oh, I'm calling about David Lee Roth. So I suddenly realized that all of the people that were calling were calling for David Lee Roth, who in 1996 was a, apparently experiencing some sort of comeback um, on in his, you know, rock star life. But I didn't follow that news. I didn't know anything about uh, David Lee Roth at all. The former lead singer of the rock band Van Halen. But apparently David Lee Roth had a quite active social life, and maybe perhaps to throw women off the track, he would hand them his old phone number, which happened to be our new phone number. And so for months, David Lee Roth's girlfriends or potential partners would be calling us, and that's why they were so disappointed to hear my voice. Now, I did not know who David Lee Roth was. I... I looked up David Lee Roth and I tried to listen to some songs of Van Halen. And even listening to the most popular songs, I had never heard one of them. But I am the outlier here because Van Halen and David Lee Roth, most people in the world know exactly who this is. Is that correct? Yes. However, I had grown up in this fundamentalist Church of Christ background and I was not completely aware of like pop culture. So I knew that Van Halen existed, and I knew that David Lee Roth existed, but I wasn't, like, totally into them or familiar with their songs. Okay, so you were the homecoming queen and very popular, and I was not an unpopular, but we both were completely mystified <laughs> by who David Lee Roth is and was. Van Halen, I was reading, they were, they're like this very, it's a very heavy rock sound, Van Halen. Right. And I think... David Lee Roth had big hair and, you know, teased his hair. And I, I think he, you know, wore very, you know, tight clothing and 
danced across the stage. And I mean, there's no telling, you know, like if you thought about the platonic form of life of rock star, David Lee Roth probably would be that. But if you thought about the platonic form of geek culture, it would be my husband. Like he read Lord of the Rings every year from cover to cover. Uh, when the movies came out, I dressed up as Arwen and he was a ring wraith. Um, he, you know, <laughs> like he, I didn't grow up in geek culture, but I married into it. And, and that's the person that I married. You could not find anyone that was more different from David Lee Roth than David French, the constitutional attorney. I mean, when you heard this news, did you immediately feel a sense of relief? Yes, I was laughing. David Lee Roth's agent was laughing. I mean, because he had threatened to come over to my apartment. And he was like, I'm going to come over there right now. and We're going to figure this out. And I was like, OK. And he was like, and, and I said, I'm in Gramercy Park. And he was like, when did you move to Gramercy Park? And I was like, I don't know. I literally just got here. I, What is happening? So when David French came home, I told him what had happened. I revealed to him that I'd had all these doubts and apprehensions about our marriage because all these women kept calling, presumably for him. And we laughed so hard. What are the odds? And, you know, if you ever met me and we, you know, we talk for any length of time, there could be two fewer different Davids, more different Davids than me and David Lee Roth. Nancy's husband, David French. And then, you know, and then I realized, oh, wait a minute. She's been getting calls from all of these women asking for David. And and then, you know, I was thinking, oh, my gosh. And I kind of put two and two together at that point that, wait a minute. So she's been, so we're, we barely know each other. And she's been getting all these calls from women for David. <laughs> what has been going through her mind? But we didn't really have that much time to appreciate the relief because our phone kept ringing. And David French would pick up the line, and he found himself in the position of actually letting down the potential paramours of David Lee Roth. They would be so disappointed, and David French would have to say, I'm so sorry. I think he gave you a wrong a wrong number on purpose. And they would cry. I mean, it was like he he broke up with women on behalf of David Lee Roth for weeks. I will never forget this conversation I had late at night with somebody who was crestfallen that she had the wrong number, just crestfallen. And and I had to, and this was so late at night, I remember I got out of bed to answer the phone and I had to like kind of walk her through the whole thing. And I had to try to be, I was trying to be really nice and very gently, you know, say what was really going on, you know, that she didn't have the right number. And yes, other women do call here. I'm so sorry. And it was terrible. I mean, I felt awful during the whole thing, but eventually it petered out. <laughs> eventually it petered out. Did you ever speak to the other David, to David Lee Roth? No, um, we are not in the same social circles. Um, <laughs> no, and I, I have not like reached out to him to find out if he had, in fact, purposefully misled hundreds of devastated Manhattan residents. You know, 
Most people get to know their future husbands and wives before they get married. I don't think that that was always the case. But nowadays, you know, a lot of couples spend years together before they get married. What was it like to do that in reverse? To to fall in love with, with David, but to really begin to get to know him once you were already completely committed to each other? Right. Um, I would not advise it. Um, Kids do not try this at home. Um, But I realized that we had a problem on our hands when one evening at about 11 o'clock at night, we went out to dinner. David excused himself to go to the restroom, and the waiter said, what does your husband take in his coffee? And in that moment, I realized I had no idea if he even drank coffee. And we just decided this was not a tenable situation. We couldn't live in New York completely separate lives. And so we made a radical change, and we packed up, and we moved back south, and we lived in a small town, and we got to know each other. And, you know, I, it was actually quite beautiful. He was as amazing as I thought he was when I was a senior in high school. I made one really good decision, and it was that I had the right assessment of him. You know, it's just, it has been the adventure that I was seeking. We tried to reach David Lee Roth for this story, but he hasn't called us back. This Is Love is created by Lauren Spohr and me, Nidia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our producer. Audio mix by Rob Byers. You can find out more about the show at thisislovepodcast.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at This Is Love Show. This Is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Radiotopia.